Well, folks, it's Jerry Adams and Shaw Arish. August Tesselagum, Gwil Shivsha, Gumoy, August Egwin Saltas and Amshur Galanta and Amshur Cha. Kahi Mayor, Agawil May Egwin Saltas. As you go hauling. And, you know, since we spoke last, uh, I was very taken not so much by the outworking of the British government's refusal to deal with legacy issues, because that's very predictable, but by the faces of the victims, the victims of all the different forces involved in the conflict, very young faces, all from, you know, old photographs, uh, some taken obviously at family occasions, at weddings or birthdays or christenings, or a night out. Uh, some quite young, children even, and mothers and sisters and daughters and sons and brothers and fathers and uncles and aunts and grandparents with smiting faces from better times. Some old black and white images. The faces of victims, the legacy of decades of conflict. In the response from the relatives for justice to the British government's plan to close down legacy cases, criminal prosecutions, inquests and civil actions was simple in design but powerful in its effectiveness. Never giving up was the hashtag. The defiant message of solidarity and of intent to pursue truth from the families was a poignant reminder of lives lost and families bereaved. Last week, the circumstances surrounding the lives and deaths of hundreds of citizens was set aside by a British government determined to protect those who carried out or were complicit in these murders. And the priority for uh, Mr. Johnson and Mr. Lewis is to protect the government and its military and security agents, the British Army, the RUC, the Military Action Force, the Force Reconnaissance Unit, British Intelligence Agencies, the Civil Service Mandarins who devised and implemented the collusion and shoot to kill policies and defended murder, and the British government's political leadership which had overall responsibility for all of this. Success of British governments without exception have connived in this. From the very commencement of Operation Bonner, the British Army's names for its decades-long military occupation in the North, legal and judicial measures were put in place to minimise British forces being held accountable for their actions. The British state knew exactly what it planned to do, Brigadier General Kitson, as I've said in these columns or other writings or podcasts, Kitson spelt it out in 1969, the year before he arrived in Belfast to take command of the British Army units in Belfast City. He said, everything done by the government and its agencies in combating insurgency must be legitimate. But this does not mean that the government must work 
with an exactly the same set of laws during an emergency as existed beforehand. The laws should be used as just another weapon in the government's arsenal, in which case it becomes little more than a propaganda cover for the disposal of unwanted members of the public. So this was British colonial policy at its most corrupt and set out in simple terms. It was the underlying ethos at the heart of the counterinsurgency strategy when the first British soldiers set foot on the streets of Derry and Belfast in August 69. The British government was less than two years out of Aden and Yemen, where it had a deserved reputation for brutality and ruthlessness. In the previous decades, it had fought counterinsurgency wars in Kenya, Cyprus, Malaya, Oman and other places. Kitson served in most of these. Torture, shoot to kill, mutilation, internment, the manipulation of the law and the judiciary were all commonplace in these conflicts. Of course, the Brits denied any wrongdoing. Accusations of human rights abuses were dismissed as black propaganda. It took 70 years for a British minister to apologise and for the British to agree to pay millions in compensation for his actions in Kenya, where thousands were killed, mutilated and raped. The Johnson government is following in this long colonial tradition of cover-up and lies. It's subjective and unilaterally introducing new legal prohibitions on truth. It's to finally end any legal avenue available to victims and their families to hold the British government and its military and political personnel to account for the murders carried out on Britain's behalf. When the British Secretary of State Brandon Lewis stood in the British Parliament on the 14th of July, he said, The unresolved legacy of the Troubles remains. It continues to impact and to permeate society in Northern Ireland. The past is a constant shadow over those who directly experienced the horrors of those times, and also those who did not, but who now live with the trauma of previous generations. Few could find fault with this comment, but Lewis then engulfed in the most rank hypocrisy. He binned the Good Friday Agreement. He binned the St Andrews Agreement. He binned the Eames-Bradley proposals and the Stormont House Agreement. He binned the New Decade New Approach Agreement. He set aside all the previous conversations on addressing legacy and outlined a legislative course of action that will reinforce all of the negative aspects of legacy he claims his proposal would end. Lewis and Johnson have ensured by their duplicity that the legacy issue will remain unresolved. It will continue to dominate much of the political discourse in the North, and their actions will add to the horror and trauma already experienced by victims. Universally negative response of families and political parties to the British position is evidence of this. Double standards, insincerity and hypocrisy are nothing new. Forty years ago, five days after Bobby Sands commenced his hunger strike, Thatcher came to Belfast. Speaking at Parliament Building, she said, there's no such thing as political murder, political bombing or political violence. There's only criminal murder, criminal bombing and criminal violence. We will not compromise on this. What she neglected to state was that this hypocritical view of the world only applied to everyone else.
Her actions and those of her government and her, its security forces were exempt. They could murder and torture and employ political violence with impunity. Johnson and Lewis know this. Their approach to legacy was decided long ago. They knew that the victims and their families, some of whom have accompanied with dignity for 50 years, would feel betrayed, hurt and angry. They don't care. The feeling of families are irrelevant to the British government. Its priority was and is protecting the British state and those who killed on its behalf. That now means shutting down the legal, the due legal process in respect of legacy inquests, judicial reviews, civil cases or prosecution cases involving British soldiers already before the courts. I have met with the families of victims of the British Army, the IRA, the UDA and UBF, the IUC and others. I'm always amazed by their courage and determination and resolve to pursue truth and accountability. That battle, in many cases, has been passed on to a new generation of grandchildren and great-grandchildren. It's very sad that that is the case. No British Act of Parliament is going to stop them. If Johnson and Lewis think that families will acquiesce to this, they are wrong. If they think that drawing an imaginary line in the sand will stop the family search for the truth, they are wrong. That line will be swept aside. I want to commend all of those who took part in the claim for unity last weekend. I did a wee bit myself. And from North Antrim to West Cork, from South Down to South Armagh, from the Sugarloaf to Connemara, Steve Foy, up in the Foyle, overlooking the Foyle in West Tyrone to Loch Crew and Patrickstown and Meath, from Cron Tucker to the Black Mountain and Cave Hill. And all the bits of height and hillocks and summits in between hundreds of activists who want a UI, brave, discouraging weather to scramble upwards with their little banners and banners and banners and banners to promote the Irish unity cause. And then there followed an epidemic of photographs on Twitter and little videos, some very sophisticated with uh, obviously expertise involved and some like my own much more primitive. Gorgeous views, breathtaking mountainscapes, landscapes, big clear blue skies. It's all amazing. So gorgeous, well done. It was a great idea. It caught on. So let's do it again sometime. And just to finish, uh, this is a tale of woe. And discerning readers of this column, or in this case, listeners to this podcast, will know that I love animals. Dogs are number one. I love horses too. Pigs. Donkeys. I admire cats. And I love all manner and make of wildlife and birds. 
including domesticated birds, farmyard ducks and geese and chickens. My friends, the dog knoppers, have chickens. They are called the dog knoppers on account of some of their, some of our dogs being found in their custody on their property once. Now the little people in my life suspect our dogs were kidnapped. I said nothing, but eventually the dogs were handed back. And that's how the dog knoppers got their name. Anyway, back to the chickens. A rooster joined the chickens recently. The little people in my life named him Russell. You can see they like giving names to things. Russell the rooster, I asked. No, Russell Crow, they said. Crow without the E on account of the way he crows. And crow he does. From dawn to dusk, I, I don't mind it. In fact, I quite like the sound of Russell's crow. And I also came to admire his strutting, flamboyant, macho parading about the place with his harem of hens. And then I came on him on his own last Thursday. He bristled at me and blocked my way. Like an old-time Belfast hard man, all who do you think you're looking at? And a Belfast dander to suit his attitude. But I stirred him down. No little red rooster is going to face down a man from the Murph. Then he flew at me. First he grew in size. His neck feathers expanded. So did his wings as with a kamikaze roar and claws outstretched he flew straight at my crotch. Whack. Beak claws. A feathered bullet of sheer aggression struck me in the Henry Halls. I was stunned. You wee bastard, I cried. Then he hit me again in the same place, right on target. This time I was scared too. I repeated quickly. He advanced. I retreated again, he advanced again. I pulled off my t-shirt and swung it like a mace. And as he flew at me again, I caught him in the gob with the garment. We went back and forth like that while the little people in my life cheered on Russell. Eventually I forced him away. He flew up from a wall, popped himself up again and defiantly crowed at me. I caught my breath and clutched my Henry Halls. I screamed at him. He shook his tail feathers at me in derision. Don't you think this is the end of this, I yelled as he strutted off. The little people in my life were not impressed. I'm planning a rematch. Honour demands it. Mono on mono. Watch this space. cock a Stones on. I'm a little red rooster, too lazy to crow the dog. I am the little red rooster, too lazy to crow for day. I am the little red rooster, too lazy 
Since my little red rooster's been gone 